folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show, comedy on Power Talk. Thank you so much for making this part of your day today. And I started my program uh, about a decade ago, over a decade ago. And uh, what I've realized more than anything is that... uh, when you start to uh, engage with spiritual musicians, doesn't matter what genre, but ultimately that spirit uh, is eternal and it keeps coming back around cyclically. And um, I had a chance uh, last week, feels like a long time ago, but it was only last week to go to this country club in Palm Desert or in Cathedral City, California to see uh, my guest who happened to be playing with uh, uh, Big Black, who um, is somebody that I first connected with back in 2013, and I did a couple of interviews with Black, and then uh, wound up staying with him and uh, at his place in Cathedral City, and then we didn't talk for a long time, and then through a buddy of mine, an amazing drummer out in California, Aaron Spursky, he hit me to his uh, mom's husband, whose name was Tim Pleasant, and the next thing you know, I'm interviewing Tim Pleasant, oh, yeah. and then I wind up um, going out and Tim's like, yeah, by the way, I'm, uh, I'm playing at this place called AJ's on the green with, and, uh, big black's going to be there. And so long and the short of it is to come full circle. I had a chance to see black live for the first time with a band that was being, uh, fronted by a, a guy I had actually never seen before, but, um, just blew my mind an incredible, uh, oh, guitar cool. player and uh, in my brief conversation with him afterwards uh, he mentioned that he's really steeped in the language of jazz and I think the language that he understands uh, is deeply rooted in the blues and the sanctified church and the spirituals it goes back a very far it's not classicalized uh, it was very evident in his playing that he had been steeped in that and uh, what an honor Guitarist Doug McDonald, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you, Jake. Nice to be here. And uh, great to see you last week on the gig. Man, dude. Um, Do we have any any new updates on AJ's, or is it still just being torn down? Well, unfortunately, they're they're not tearing it down, but what they're doing is the new owner is taking over early, and he was planning to remodel in July, but he's doing it a little early in June here. And um, he doesn't know what he's going to do. He's supposed to bring us back in a couple of weeks, but this guy seems like he's not experienced. I hate to say it, but you know, club owning and club running is a big job. And if you haven't done it, you're in for a big, you know, wake up call. So let's keep our fingers crossed, as everybody. Says. Well, I got to tell you, I mean, it, 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 it to me, it's uh, <clears throat> it's not the necessarily the trendy thing to do. But the, I will say that the coolest part about that whole place, no. Uh, any kind of distractions or multi-sensory stimulation. It would be a tragedy if there were flat-screen TVs put in there. It was one of the last cool listening rooms right. that I've I've been to in a long yeah. time, man. Yeah, thanks for noticing that. Well, like I say, he... Uh, he yeah, we'll see what happens, you know. Him, I, yeah, see what happens. I told him, I said, look, just don't chase all those regulars away that you saw when you came last Wednesday. And I say, you know, hey, like, you know, don't start over from ground zero because you got a built-in crowd that we had to build up. But now people know we're there and they come and et cetera, et cetera. But like you said, see what happens, you know. 
Well, let me ask you a question. I mean, you know, if if we walk down yep. the street and ask 20 different people what their concept of jazz is, we'd probably get 20 different answers. And for somebody who grew up uh, really conversing with a lot of a lot of masters, I mean, you know, Stan Getz, I, right. I, you know, these guys right. that were, I mean, it was a street language through and through, and, and they came up with that, and then they worked their asses off and eventually created other types of languages like bebop and things like that. I just wanted you to... Right. To talk about what your concept of, of jazz is. Well, there was a guitarist that uh, was well-known on his own, but he kind of got pretty well-known working with Oscar Peterson and Ray Brown. His name was Herb Ellis. Mm. And he said that what's important in his mind was to know the roots of the music. And I think that's a little bit of a problem today. A lot of young kids start with Chick Corea or Herbie Hancock, which were brilliant players. Uh, but they don't necessarily go back to the very beginning of the music. You know, the Johnny Hodges, the Charlie Christian, the Lester Young, uh, you know, the early pianist, you know, all the great people, whoever they were, Art Tatum or Earl Father Hines and all that, just to know. And like you said, it's a combination of blues, swing, and, you know, like jazz harmony, which is sort of like classical music. So it's kind of like the way I look at it is like the classical music of the blues, yeah. if you will, yeah. you know. So, I mean, did, kind of people, I, I just wonder, ahead. like, I mean, did you, uh, did you have opportunities, you know, you, you had like this really interesting uh, flavor that came out, like it was kind of like, uh, it felt like, um, like a boogaloo kind of feel to it, uh, like, um, almost like a boogaloo Joe Jones or like one of those chicken scratch kind of, like you knew, you, you clearly were based in the blues I just wonder about, like, if you could talk a little bit about... I've talked to a lot of cats that, you know, like, I just... One thing that came into my head was um, I did a bunch of interviews with uh, the, the original drummer from, from Paul McCartney's Wings, Denny Sywell, and he talked about um, basically getting kicked off the bandstand by Lou Donaldson back in the day because he couldn't play a shuffle. And, and you know, it was like it was like cut sessions. That, that, that was not unusual, and instead of, like wallowing in self-pity he just shedded it in a couple days he came back and, and pulled it off but can you talk about like a time earlier in your career when when you kind of fell on your face but in reality looking back it was probably the best thing that happened to you well what happened to me is uh, i was about 13 years old and then maybe 14 almost somewhere around there in between uh, I started the trombone in the school band, and I started guitar. So it was a little bit hard to try to learn two instruments at once, and I'm, I stayed with the guitar. But I played the trombone long enough to play in the wind ensemble and the orchestra, and I, I heard a lot of things that would be considered compositional, orchestral things. So I always had a bug to do some writing. So several years later, I studied composition with a couple teachers, um, one being Lyle Spud Murphy, who was kind of a famous, notorious guy. Another guy was David Blumberg. But what happened is I've always tried to combine the blues with other things. And I think part of it is because of hearing all those lines when I was playing with a with an orchestra hmm. and big band too. So the jazz thing is interesting, but uh, I like to combine the two. Uh, it's almost like a weird way to look at it is like if you took, two famous players, and, and Miles Davis always talked about this, you put him in a funnel. He was talking about trumpet players, like 
Roy Eldridge and Dizzy Gillespie and everybody else. But sure. for guitar, like if, if you took Wes Montgomery and Johnny Smith, and, and, and Johnny Smith had loads of technique and had a beautiful harmonic concept. And, of course, Wes had his own harmonic concept, but more of a blues, earthy type of style. Um, if you put the two together, you've got something interesting. So I've always looked at it that way, is try to learn from the beginning to the end and, and um, also to combine things to come up with something. Because I've never been in favor of copying somebody. A lot of people transcribe solos and all that. And I say, well... I'd like to learn four bars of it, but not the whole thing. Absolutely, man. But, no, I mean, why Why do you... So, first of all, would you say that you've... Was there ev Have you ever faced adversity on the bandstand, though? I mean, was there a seminal moment when you... Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was a request. Yeah, a lot of times. I was working with some groups when I was younger, like Gabe Baltazar's band. Oh, my, I do. I, I got to say, I love that cat, man. Yeah, yeah, I grew up in Hawaii. I was born in Chile, grew up in Hawaii. So, but I remember playing things, and I thought, well, this is new to me. And I thought, I'll get it eventually. And I was sort of a late bloomer, slow learner, where some kids learn everything at 19, and, that, and that's it. They don't really get that much better, or 23. But for me, it's, it's, I'm still learning today, especially sure. with the, the writing. But I didn't answer your question. I'm sorry. Yeah, the adversity definitely was there. I would say on a lot of gigs because, first of all, they would call it to and go, oh, my God, I don't know that song. <laughs> and when I came to the mainland from Hawaii, first of all, with Gabe Baltazar's group, I certainly felt that way. Like, I'm kind of green. I was about 23, I think. And I thought, oh, geez, you know, a lot of this stuff I better learn, which I eventually took my time and did. And then uh, when I got to the mainland, it's like all these tunes. And I said, oh, my God. So I learned a lot of songs. And then you just get experience by hanging out with, like you said, the right cats and the language. And the, there was an area in L.A. called Toluca Lake. And at that time, there was like the Money Tree. There was Alphonse's. There was uh, Chadney's down the street in Burbank. So, you know, I was able to hang out with a lot of people like uh, Ross Tompkins from The Tonight Show and a bass player named Herb Mickman and then a, a pianist named Marty Harris and, and then all the name guys, the, the Jack Sheldons and Bob Cooper. And I got to record with a lot of these people and Clayton Hamilton Orchestra. Mm. Uh, I just talked to John Clayton a couple days ago. But to make a long story short, yes, there was adversity, and I think it was like going to school. And I remember making rehearsal bands because it helps your reading and all that, thinking, oh, gosh, I better stay on top of this. So, yeah, there was adversity, but it, it was like a lesson. I agree. I mean, can you? I interviewed Gabe uh, almost 10 years ago. I mean, that dude was playing with you know like he was so ahead of his time i mean can you talk a little bit about your ear like oh, yeah. ultimately like i feel like today i mean i've been you know <clears throat> talking to a lot of the shaman cats like gary bartz sure. i mean they would say that like um that that you know the cat from old school the cats because they basically learned to hear the music before they learned to read yeah. it their ears were wide yeah. open, so they could really hear things, and they could hear the collective sound of the band. Whereas you have younger cats today, because we're inundated with, we're saturated with material that oh, so yeah. so many cats are learning stuff to read first before they learn to hear it. So their their ears are actually yeah. locked a little bit. And I just wonder, like, how you, you know, you know, clearly there's like a there's like an, a, an apprenticeship that goes on at AJ's, and hopefully will continue. I mean, how yeah. Of course, I saw a couple of cats there that, I mean, that one, there's a couple of cats that were on fire that were younger, that were just sort of savant yeah. characters. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, 
a specific band you were in where you felt like your ears grew the most and you were able to to hear deeper? Well, I think what happened is as I was able to move to the mainland from Hawaii, I went to Las Vegas first and I met players like Carl Fontana. Oh. I think being around, I always believed that Osmosis, uh, yeah, drummer totally, named, dude. Uh, <laughs> Tom Montgomery, and, and then a, a well-known bass player, Carson Smith, who made a lot of records. Are you with, kidding uh, me? Putter's brother? Yeah. yeah. Oh my! Wait, yeah, Putter's brother. I thought he died a long time got, ago. He was still he was still kicking when you were when you were there. Oh yeah! In fact, he called me before he passed. Oh Christmas. man, <laughs> dude! Sick family, dude. Unreal, dude. Unreal. Yeah, th- yeah that's so, so cool. So Putter, I got to play with when I came to L.A. and guys like Frank Stazeri and oh gosh, uh, you know. Uh, so here I'm playing with Bob Cooper and Snooky Young. Snooky was on the Tonight Show, sure. and, uh, and I thought, well, this is great because it's more of a trad swing band than bebop, and it was good because I always liked Johnny Hodges and Coleman Hawkins, and and then I got to play with people like Teddy Edwards. They're all West Coast. Oh, I love this stuff, and, dude. This is on you yeah. were you you were you definitely were able to play with the masters, man. Well, and it changes your playing because mm. in Hawaii it was limited to get people like Gabe, and I also played with Trummy Young, who was a great player. Trummy's in the movie uh, High Society with wow. uh, wow. uh, Louis Armstrong, which has uh, you know Frank Sinatra, uh, Bing Crosby, Grace Kelly. So you know they were around all that stuff. Trummy caught the great years with Louis, and uh, he had his own thing in Hawaii, even though he traveled all over the world. But he was a great player too, and I I think what it is is absorbing some of that traditional stuff helps because like you said in the day, like for example, um, John Coltrane started with Johnny Hodges and I'm telling people that they don't seem to think that's important. Well, yeah, it is because that's the roots of the music, like Duke Ellington and everything. And you learn something from that. Plus you're learning to hear it. And it's not the same as just going to school. One of the philosophies I have Mm. in the twenties had a lot of jazz music around and unfortunately, what happened, the culture went up, I'm sorry, the technology went up, like musical counterpoint, contrary motion, the the um, culture goes up, like technology, and down comes the culture. As you notice, the pop culture today, pretty bad, there's no songs. You know, You're, the you nailed it down, I've never heard that, that's exactly, yeah. the technology... Are you saying that, that that happened 100 years ago too? Is that what you're saying, in the 20s? Well, I, I think in the 20s, there was a lot of songs and, yeah. and there was a lot of players and a lot of um, live music. And then um, when they started to record more, it slowly disappeared. And I think by the end of the forties, and of course it lasted into the fifties, but from the twenties to forties, you have most of our standards. They say great American songbook, but I call them the standard tunes. And that kind of means a commercial dance band would play them, a pop artist, a jazz artist, even a classical musician might take a, a standard by somebody like Gershwin and, and orchestrate it, or, or they might do something with it, you know, a, a pop's orchestra or something. So they kind of go to all genres. Even country people do some standards, as you notice, you know, like you'll hear somebody doing Honeysuckle Rose in the country field. Absolutely. So they kind of cross in the rock people too. I mean, everybody knows some standards because you've seen movies and you've heard records and it's been around so long. And, you know, 
99% of all the, the famous rock people are very familiar with all kinds of music. Even though they do rock and roll, they certainly have listened to classical music and, uh, you know, they've listened to the, 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 you know, the pop jazz people and the jazz people. So to make a long story short, I, I think what happens is I love the technology because I use writing programs and recording programs, but the culture went down. It's like counterpoint, like, you know, the, the bass goes. <laughs> you're nailing it, dude. No, you're, you, you're, you're, I mean, but, but I mean, explain what is it? <clears throat> is it the reliance on a, you know, cause it, like technology, I mean, as you're getting hip to my show, you can yeah. see the, you know, it's a tool, you know, like it's a tool, but right. if you become too reliant on it, then you lose your edge. I yeah. mean, is that really what's happened with culture is that if you become more reliant on inanimate technology, then the culture goes down. Well, you know, nobody really knows why. Yep. Uh, it should be that way. It should be everything advances, but it doesn't work that way. It's like a counteract reaction. But I can tell you this, that a lot of what things would happen in the new music, which some of it's great, don't get me wrong, and I studied composition, so I, I like fresh music and invent, inventive ideas. In fact, even a total music, even though most of the stuff we play is very total um I, I studied atonal writing, so I really like it, and I've done a lot of things for a large band written that way. But what I can say is that a lot of times what I find missing in the newer artists, whether they be vocalists or instrumentalists, there's a coldness to it. And I don't like to use the word, it doesn't swing, but sometimes that's the, the factor, too. It's a rhythmic thing. And they're much more versatile today with rhythms and counter-rhythms and polyrhythms and time signatures. But... I just think a lot of the heart of the old music, it's a different focus, I guess, maybe. Like, when you had guys like Lester Young, they would play a melody, like, really, really sing it, you know. And uh, today, <clears throat> they don't always think that way. They want to think, how cutting edge can I get? I'm, I'm, I'm reinventing the wheel. I'm breaking new ground. Well, I don't know if you're really breaking new ground. <laughs> uh, you're no, you I'm telling you, man, they're, 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 they're like... They're like uh, I just feel like in modern in modern pop music, especially like it's it's really even yeah. it, it's made for pacification. It's not made for like introspection and yeah. feel and burning. It's I don't hear any dynamics at all, and I don't hear. I mean, and I, I hear so many ideas being thrown at you yeah. that there's no space. There's no space in the music, so you can't even really swing. You can't dance to it. Well, and, and the thing is, is, is um, the, the instrumental jazz um, sort of did lose their audience when they went out of the dance mode and everybody... It got too, yeah, it got too precious. I agree with you. Yes. Yeah. And, and even though like bebop was nice and progressive, it did lose a lot of the audience, but you've always had a strong swing jazz presence in the Roy Eldridge type people. And, and, um, you know, there's always been that thing going on and, you know, you got to remember, even Louis Armstrong still had hits like um, Hello, Dolly, even though it was commercial, but he was, like everybody else, like Sinatra, they're trying to make a living in the music. And, you know, he had a hit with Hello, Dolly in the 60s. Um, Dave Brubeck had a hit with Take 5, which is weird because it's a drum solo, and it's in 5-4. Right. It's a top 40 hit. Really bizarre. In fact, Eugene Wright used to live close to me in North Hollywood, and, and I used to run into him. He was in Burbank. Great guy. He was with Brubeck. He lived to be into his nineties. I interviewed uh, you know, I interviewed the senator, man. That dude was playing at the Regal Theater back in Chicago in the day, man. Yep. That dude is a bad no, yeah. That, that I mean yeah, but I think it I mean, 
here, here's, I think that one thing I, I wanted to, because we could expound on, on, you know, I, I think that younger, I just think that Doug, it's like, if you're in today's world, I just ask you, you know, can you really codify the language of jazz? Like it, the idea that you're going to go to a university potentially go into debt hundreds of thousands of dollars with no guarantee of of a gig on the other side. I mean, Lenny, I remember talking to all the original guys when they went to the Schillinger house, what was Berkeley school became. And like, I remember Ernie Watts saying like, you know, Charlie Mariano would come off the road because either he was trying to kick a habit or he'd pick up a new instrument, but you'd go, it was like a trade school for already established professionals and now you're going into school, no guarantee of a gig. And I just, I, I ask you this. I mean, I know you feel blessed to have caught the tail end of these masters, the Teddy Edwards and the, all these amazing right. dudes. But do you still think that our society, and I'm not talking about the AJ's crowd, because those cats, all, no. all except with, you know, I was born in 78, but most of those cats came up when jazz was still popular music. And I just, I, my question is, do you still think that a musician younger cat like are they viewed as a profession or is music viewed as a musician's gift to the world because it's just like dizzy never yep. got rich my i mean they, they yep. did they did okay they did fine but they got compensated but now it's like oh you can pay to play or you can play for the door you know this and i just wonder societally do we still view the musician as a viable profession well, the, the the problem with live music is it's taken a beating because of the expense, mostly like we, we talk about this guy just opening up the club or, mm-hmm. or taking ownership. You know, if you opened up a, a club on Sunset Boulevard, your rent's going to be insane. And my gosh. And then right, right. Uh, it's getting people in and the band wants so much money and you're thinking, how am I going to make this nuts? So that's a lot of the problems are economic. We're back in the 50s. Like in back in 1953, it wasn't as hard because uh, now the Canarino family owned the Half Note Cafe, and I met Mike, the, one of the sons. He was running trumpets in Montclair, New Jersey, outside of New York, and he said it was always hard because they had the Half Note in the um, in the 50s. Wow! And 60s, and he wow! Said it was always hard. Wow! It was Italian, Italian, but, Italian family. Yeah. Wow! Right. So cool. And, and it was in Soho, south of House Street. I would say basically the problem is the, the laymen need the music because when they hear it, and especially young people, if they could get exposed to it and classical music, if they get exposed to better music, they'll develop a, a taste for it. It's just like if you like a good wine, if you've never had wine, of course, some people should never start drinking. <laughs> yeah, but no, if you yeah. have a drink, <laughs> yeah. No, I but, dig, man. You know, I did. Thing, yeah. It's like, Wow, this this wine is really good. I never tried it before. So, well, you know, it's an aged Cabernet, and you know, <laughs> it's only seven hundred bucks a bottle. Right, right. Saying. No, it, it, but, but once you get a taste, you, you you need more. You know, you get a taste yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like coffee or tea or something. At first, kids go, "What is this?" And they go, "Oh, that's pretty good." I would say the the issue is um, things will always change, and and one of the things is. If you do a gig like we did the other night, in fact, I saw Big Black on Sunday. We said, where are we going to go? And actually, there was a place in Palm Desert, but I forgot about it. But it really wasn't that great anyway. But um, <laughs> there wasn't really a lot of choices to go on a Sunday night to hear somebody, especially like 8 o'clock at night. Right. So I, I think a lot of it. But 
I think the thing is, is the young kids have one advantage is that um, a lot of people like the jazz legends, if they were still alive now, like a Sonny Rollins, he's going to be able to make better money for concert. And I heard it's quite a bit now if, if Sonny does a concert. Um, so I think that's the, you know, like if Oscar Peterson were still alive, he'd demand pretty good money uh, for a concert. On the on the non-famous level, all the kids, a lot of them are, are lucky because there's a surgence of young people from the schools. <clears throat> and like you said, a lot of them would have a hard time because they'll just have to start teaching or, or doing whatever. But I think there is an um, interest in the young talent. Like labels want to record, I call them everybody's 13. Well, they're more like 19, but I say everybody's 13 today. <laughs> And or 23 years old, but so uh, there is a chance for the young people to do well because they do seem to look out for that, and a lot of it is they have a lot of peers from their school, like USC or uh, you know the, the new school in New York or wherever they go, Berkeley, like you mentioned. So let's say they go to the new school in New York and their teacher and they're just like UCLA Film School, they're walking out of school with connections, and I think that's what's happening. I have a couple students. Uh, that I teach, and they, um, you know, went to USC, and they're they're going to be well connected. Besides the piece of paper, which is great to have, they're going to have connections in the business and even in the jazz business. So it's very youth oriented, not just music, but Hollywood. Like for scriptwriters, producers, as you've heard, everything. Everybody's thirteen years old. Go to a bar now, and we're the oldest guys. You know, <laughs> that's right. No, I, but I, here's the thing. I, I just we can pivot out of here but i just i wanted to ask you so, i mean the the reason i'm infatuated with uh the music of a certain period of time in art history uh i mean every i, I don't care if it was lee morgan or miles or dizzy or pete laroca mickey roke or max roach i mean Everybody had their own individual yeah. sound, right? And they were still singing yeah. for their they were singing for their supper, being able to make creative individual sounding music. Everybody had their own individual sound. But now we're in this time of comping and conformity. Yeah. And I think the connections are great. Yeah. I mean, that's cool, but as a true creative musician, I mean, once this stuff gets assimilated, and digested by the general public, all of a sudden you lose all creative control and you have to sound like somebody else. That's my issue is like, you know, you, yeah. you go into the university, you come out sounding like your professor. I know there's a couple of people that'll break through, but that's, I mean, nobody can do it alone. It wasn't just dizzy. There were like four dozen or more, hundreds of cats and they were able to make a living playing themselves. And I just feel like any, if I was behind the microphone and I had, somebody and I was getting a paycheck and someone was telling me the questions that I needed to ask Doug McDonald, I'd get pretty burned out after a while. And I just feel like that's the crisis now is like, you cannot, if you're doing what you feel is individualistic or unique, good luck to you. And I just wish we could return to that fearlessness because we are just bending. I can't tell who anybody is anymore, really. I mean, that was why it was cool to hear you play guitar because it was very, it was yourself. And I just don't think kids feel that they necessarily, they have to learn, they, they can learn all the Charlie Parker stuff, they can transcribe all the solos, but then what is your story? And, and I think that they're afraid to necessarily tell the story because they're not going to be able to make a living doing that. Well, you know, that you're, you're actually right on all points. I can't argue with all that. I think 
the problem is I somehow figured out when I was young, when I said I started playing guitar and trouble at about 13 or 14. And after a couple of years, you know, I, I got, wasn't sure what to do. And then jazz became my thing. And, and uh, I always had an ear for the compositional side, but I always felt like you shouldn't cop anybody. And I don't know if it's the older musicians telling me that <laughs> or it's just yeah. the fact that I felt that that was not the way for me. Um, and I was, like I said, I always felt like Miles, like shove that stuff in a funnel. Like you said, put all your favorite players. Right, blend it up. Yeah, exactly. I love it. Yeah, and then that's why I always felt like Johnny Smith and West Montgomery, or you could say somebody like, um, I'm just trying to think of guitarists that people are familiar with because I can mention some names they don't. Maybe Grant Green and George Van Epps. I mean, that's pretty wild. I love that. That's a huge spectrum right there. It's perfect. Yeah. Williams was so harmonically great, and I got to play with him once or twice and hang wow. out with him. What a brilliant guy! Dude, story. brilliant dude, about man. Doing, and I, I won't get on a tangent here, but it's fine. About doing a duo with Fats Waller in New York in a little tiny place. I mean, here's George Van Epson, Fats Waller. I can't believe it. Then <laughs> he talked about sitting on George. Um, it was out in Plainfield, New Jersey. George, because uh, uh, the family being musicians. George Gershwin, he's sitting on Gershwin's knee. You know, as a kid. Wow. I mean, on and on and on. I mean, these stories. But, yeah, I mean, I always felt like, okay, fine. Try to copy Wes Montgomery. I think I read that once. I said, they, it said somebody wrote it, one of the famous cats. Like, if you try to copy Bird or, or Wes or somebody, you're always going to be behind. Oh, they knew what they were going to do next, and you don't, I think. Maybe it was Wes that said that. He said, if you try to copy somebody... They always know what they're going to do next, and you don't. You know what I mean? It's Absolute, a weird kind oh, of philosophy. But, I mean, no, I, I yeah. just want to say something, though. Like, I mean, I got <laughs> in one of my interviews with the late, great Joe Sample, he said that oh, sure. he so, said he went know. to – he was such a beautiful guy. And he's like, he's like, I went to West Montgomery's house in Indianapolis one day, and he's like, I think he was working well, on a song, and he showed up, and Wes is playing him this song, and, and Joe said, well – well, what chord was that? And Wes said, I have no idea. And he goes, well, what chord was that? He goes, I have no idea. And Joe's like, you mean to tell me that you have no idea what you're playing? Like, tech- he had n- he had no idea. He, he It was so... I have a plot. Yeah. What I'm saying is, like, you cannot, I, I, you can't study that. Period. I mean, the man was a, a concrete mixer. He had eight kids. He lived the blues. I mean, he was living his life. He was playing his life. So, like the idea of saying, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cop Westlicks." West didn't even know technically what he. And that that's the brilliance of this street scholar mentality is that you talked about him having an earthy feel. It was totally indigenous. It was not in a book. Well. I think, first of all, that was a musical family. I met two of the brothers. I met Monk Montgomery when he was playing Fender Bass. Oh, my bass, God. And then I met Buddy Montgomery in San Francisco once. He was playing some gig. I forget with who. They used to play a lot together. And, and, and Buddy played vibes and piano, and Monk played bass. And I think there was other members that were around sure. with them. and. The the way I understand it, I I I've I've looked at Wes's stuff closely, and I would I would say that that's true what you're saying, but he he did know more than he was saying. Now here's another factor: they mentioned guys like Wes or Earl Garner. 
that didn't read music. I, I don't think that all of them are, are that way. I think they just are not sight readers where, where they could look. Absolutely. You're 100% right. No, no, yeah. totally, totally. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, they could read something. A lot of them could because it's not that hard to read like Mary Had a Little Lamb, but then to read a <laughs> symphonic score is a different thing. Uh, and sometimes the simpler stuff is harder. But anyway, to get back to Wes, he did understand progressions because if, if you listen and look at what somebody transcribed, it does make musical sense. Like, I don't want to get technical with people, but he's doing G minor 9 to C13 flat 9 and, and F major 9. Those are like standard jazz-type chord progressions, which they do in classical music, too. They just don't necessarily do it always in rock and roll. Sometimes they do. Other times it's three chords. Uh, and then certain blues artists like T-Bone Walker and B.B. King would use more progressions than just the three chords, depending on the tune. Uh, and then other blues artists are like the folk blues, just three chords. Sure. But the thing with Wes is it makes perfectly sense with voice leading and harmony. So since he had brothers that played music, I know they played together. They rehearsed a lot. And then there was also other musicians that he was playing with later on, people like Harold Land and all that. So they did basically uh, understand the harmony, but sometimes maybe they don't know what the school term for it is or the absolutely no uh, dude let's be very clear let's be totally clear Dominic. i mean west montgomery i remember michael howell yeah. great guitar player walked into a club in san francisco yeah. and like west sure, he was he, yeah right a, a dear friend and he like sits down at the front table and he said west just looked at him and he was playing and west is like oh yeah you think you're a bad man and he just went I mean, the man was a total genius. It's just, there was nothing intellectual about it. There was no intellectualism about it. It was just, he understood. Well, I, yeah. I, would, I, I would say it's like Louis Armstrong. They have their own way of treating. Um, it's like they say, like Louis Armstrong or, or Zoot Sims didn't think about the changes, but yet they did because mm. they they tend to play the the better notes. Just like a guy like, you can tell he's an arranger, a guy like he passed away, Al Cohn. His notes were so good. Oh, my God. I tell a lot of tech, but like his notes are great because he's a great writer. Uh, there's a guy here in L.A., uh, Kim Richmond, wonderful writer, beautiful alto player. And the guys like that that write, I can hear, you know, the arranger's influence in their playing. Um, uh, years ago, too, without getting off the subject, they discouraged that because especially studios wanted you to be a player or writer. You, you can't do both because – we need you as one or the other. And I get that when there's work 24-7, but the idea exactly. is what's wrong with me. Like, look at Debussy. He played great piano and he could orchestrate. Ravel, too. They were great players and Chopin and everybody else. But I'm just saying there's a, there's a lot of myths in music. Like, oh, if I learn to read music, there goes my jazz playing. Well, that's a bunch of BS. I think <laughs> I think Wes was more in yeah. people think, but he might have had his own um, method. Uh, just like if you measure in millimeters or inches, you know, it's it's a different concept. It's like he's doing it in Greek and you and I are doing it in English. Absolutely. You know? Let me, I'm going to, I'm going to, I will, yeah. it's just, it's cool yeah. because like yeah. when I heard sure. that, I mean, Joe, Joe was really just talking about like, like he was just talking about the idea that like someone like Sonny Stitt, when he first came up, everybody was comparing him to Bird and Joe's like, that's insane. Yeah. Why would, I don't want to be, right the next bird i want to be my own and yep. so stit eventually had to pivot out of that and he was just talking about he did 
you know, ultimately, however, whatever languages and how, how big is, I mean, Dennis Coffey, I mentioned to you, the guy from Motown, one of the original Funk Brothers, yeah. and he was out in, in uh, L.A., I mean, he'd go see Wes. <clears throat> I mean, Wes was a profound dude. I mean, he maybe couldn't even articulate yeah. it. You know, he just knew it. Uh, there's no doubt. It's just the idea of being a, a street scholar. And by the way, I, I, you probably know this, but in 19, first, first dude to be playing electric bass on a jazz album, Monk Montgomery, 1953, Art Farmer. I don't know if you knew that or not. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, I got it. 1953. So, I mean, like, the, the, the point is that, like, you know, you play enough with your peers, with your family, you're going to get stuff together. Uh, but, you know, we have a game on this program, Doug, called Name That Voice. Um, take a listen to this. Oh, good. Take a listen to this. Uh, you may or, pay attention to the content right. and, and we'll come back. Sure. Sure. You know what I'm saying? So music went from the street inside. You see what I'm saying? So, so, the only place to play was the jazz parlors and the parlor of the jazz house. So all the black artists were, 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 became in the white community uh, jazz house coons. And and you can go you can go on the internet or you can go to the library and pick up sheet music from the days when they printed music, uh, coon music they call it with a with a with a with a um, uh, 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 comic strip version of a black person on the cover of the music sheet, dressed in a top hat. You know what I'm saying? And a red coat. And, you know what I'm saying? All of that shit. That all of that shit relates to jazz. You see what I'm saying? The feeling that was 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 that that the people had um, for the music that they supposed to love so much today. You understand? The music that more white cats are getting rich off today than black cats. I've always been that way. You understand? Blacks never made a dime from jazz. I mean, Dizzy, all those cats, you thought was making money. They made a little money. You understand? But they weren't making the kind of money they should have made. You know what I'm saying? And I know that. I saw how they lived. They had a good life, but they didn't have a great life. And so what they did, what they brought to the music scene, they should have all had a great life. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, what do you think of Duke Ellington playing back-to-back -back with the average white band? You understand? And they're paying the average white band 90 grand a night and giving Duke Ellington 20 grand for his big magnificent band. Mm -hmm. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. This, that's what I'm talking about, the difference between the music and this whole commercial aspect of what America has always been. Uh, you understand? Who spends the most money? Who draws the most money? Makes the most money. It has nothing to do with how long you've been in the business or what you bring to it as a genius. You understand? You don't make a dime unless you get average white families, obviously, drawing $90,000 worth of people in the room. All right, Doug McDonald, do you know who that is? That's BB, Big Black. I call it BB. BB. Well, by the way, Pleasant threw me, uh, tossed me the um, gumbo CD with you and this guy Shelly, oh, ridiculous Shelly. sax player, yeah. man, unreal show. But that was my interview. Believe yeah. it or not, I just want to say how special it was to see you last week because, believe it or not, that interview was from August of 2012. 
So, I mean, I oh, go... that long ago? Yeah. So, I mean, like, to see Black... Play, I never saw him play live. It was such an honor oh, wow. to see that. And, you know, he's... <laughs> that was revelatory, the idea that, like, you know, Duke Ellington could be on a bill with the average white band, and the average white band's getting 90 grand, and Duke Ellington's getting 20 grand. And, you know, I just... I wanted you to just talk about if you... From your own point of view, I know you weren't, you know, kicking it with with uh, back in the fifties with Van Epps and and Pass and those cats. But I mean, did you did you gravitate to impro- melodic improvisation or jazz because um, because it was always about the uns- th- th- there were so many geniuses unheralded geniuses. I mean, there's something about pulling for the underdog. That's always been part of my ethos, whether it's sports or whatever it is. And I just, I wanted you to just talk. I mean, there's been a lot of commercialization of the music. Uh, like we've talked about the codifying components of the music. I don't hear that when I hear you're playing because you didn't, you kind okay. of, you were in the funnel. I mean, you went to the, you were, you were in the funnel. Luckily, you were able to come out of that and sing for your supper. But I just wanted to know why you were attracted to playing basically an african-american art form right exactly well like you said it's the classical music of the blues right. and i think that's kind of what it is um i think that um when i first started i i listened to everything and and i had heard all kinds of records from classical to pop music and everything else but i i think i found the jazz thing because i wasn't really felt like I was destined to be a vocalist. Uh, I mm. tried it as a kid and I just, I don't know, didn't feel comfortable with it. I don't know why. Maybe it was the pitch or something about, well, I can't control this. Or, and of course, anything you could do if you want to. But <laughs> then I noticed that, that jazz was blues, but more advanced and more instrumental, if you were. It wasn't necessarily as vocal. Most of the blues stuff was vocal. And they do that today. They try to make jazz vocal, but it's it's not as vocal. There's part of the music is vocal, but a lot of times now, especially on the West Coast, they have a jazz gig. They, they feel like they got to put a singer in front, right? And I like both, and I love backing them up. There's a lot of training to be an accompanist. That's a very separate skill than a soloist, and I try to learn that too. Uh, but one of the things is that if you look at Barney Kessel, who I knew. Um, He's another guy that passed. Okay, in his day, hmm. talking to Ron Day, another guitarist about that. In his day, here he starts with jazz at the Philharmonic. He's playing with Oscar and Ray. And then he's working with Billie Holiday. And he's working with all the jazz greats. And he's in Italy. And he's at a cafe backing up just informally with Lester Young and Billie Holiday. He takes his guitar out. But they're from that era when that was in vogue, so to speak. But... Nowadays, as Barney said years ago, he said it's really crowded now. And Chuck Niles, the jazz DJ, said that there's just a lot of people out there. And the public doesn't know one bass player from the other, one drummer from the other. And the problem with the market is it's that's another issue. It's yes. saturated. But I think for me, I was attracted to it because it made sense logically. Because a friend of mine said, well, I remember when you were... 15 you were playing more blues and stuff i said well i just wasn't sure which way to go by the time i was 16 i was definitely into it because i felt and i he says well why i said well it's just a natural progression it's like moving from novelty music to classical music it's like you think well you know you got these these kind of you know cornball well i hate to call it cornball because some of it's great but you know like some of this 
novelty music that's not really uh, tongue-in-cheek or it's uh, whatever it is, but you get into a more serious music. And, uh, you know, the thing is, I think I just grab it. To me, it's a natural progression. You just progress to the instrumental music that's more sophisticated or more involved. But now, unfortunately, politics is really predominant more than it was in the 50s or 40s. I think it was somewhat, but record labels were going, I want the best player. Okay, I want Oscar Peterson. I want I want Charlie Parker. I want Tal Farlow. You know, I want Billy Holiday. But today, uh, you know, as you know, and you have a, probably a better handle on that than I do, but the way the politics work, it's like someone says, hey, you got to use my guy. You know, that's exactly and, uh, no. Not, that is really. I think no. Actually, I don't. That's really kind of inside baseball stuff, and that's true. They 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 yeah. want, they want to play it safe and go with the, their connections and their people as opposed to the 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 people that can serve the song best. I was surprised some of the people that got signed when they were signing people, like some I forget what label it was. Uh, it might have been. Um, oh, I can't. It doesn't matter. Con- well, Concord even. But the records didn't necessarily do well, as you know, you know, even with names. But, okay, they said we only use named people on certain concerts or certain recording contracts. Yet I see somebody I never heard of, and I and I hear it, and I go, well, they're very good, but I'm surprised they got signed. I mean, it wasn't like they were, you know, leaving everybody in the dust. And, you know, it's it's more about musicality. Like I mentioned, people like Johnny Hodges again or... Roy Eldridge, it, it's a Lester Young. It's a quality of music. It's not how many notes you can play, too, because a lot of people think, well, you know, so-and-so played the most notes, so therefore he's the better player. Yeah. Listen to Jim Hall, it's not the case. You know, it's a combination of things, just like classical music. It isn't one thing the composer's doing. It's the way they orchestrated it. It's the way they have their lines they wrote. It's, it's the space. It's like you said, you know, there's a flair to it. It's a skill. Um, so it's very difficult sometimes for the layman to tell the difference. It's like weeds are weed out in the woods. Uh, they look alike, but one is a weed and one is wheat, you know? Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, but I mean, like, I, I'm, first of all, when I, I cannot believe that one of the reasons, I mean, one of the reasons that I got infatuated with a, my dear friend, the skipper, Henry Franklin or big black or all these cats yeah. is because yeah. is because of guys like Chuck Niles, because I, I would buy these yeah random records on catalyst or something and you know henry's like you know and all of a sudden you're reading about these guys and you're seeing the accompanist and you're like these dudes have been through it man and then all of a sudden you reach out and they're accessible and you bring them on the program and you reveal information it's just like this whole i mean it always was a subculture liebman even said that through the 70s was still a black subculture i mean you know that's what it was and you could feel that and then there was all the civil rights stuff but I guess maybe the best, instead of pontificating, I just, what what is the best advice that you can give to younger cats who are seekers knowing that the game is kind of already, I don't want to say fixed, but like you said, it's like, how did he get signed? Well, it's, you know. It's jaded. It's very jaded. You yes. Know, it's like, like right. a skew. I would say, find, like you said earlier, find your own voice. Um, try to stick with great musical elements like, 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 uh, fresh rhythms and and your own harmonic way mm. and your own melodic way and it's it's almost like you want to have your own voice you don't want to sound if you were a singer you don't want to sound like Carmen McRae you don't want to sound like June Christie you want to sound like yourself 
And the, the biggest problem today is our man Frank Sinatra. Everybody wants to be Frank Sinatra. Well, what they did in music, they tried to make one guy. Oh, it's, it's, it's all Sinatra. It's not all Sinatra. You know, you got Billy Eckstein, you got Johnny Hartman, you got Joe Williams. Um, you got a lot of people, you know. Eddie Jefferson. I, I think what I'm saying, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of people. And I think I think the problem is is when you make one guy it like Buddy Rich, they do that with Joe Pass or West too. And of course we love them. And I got to know Joe and I got to play with him. I never met West. I met his two brothers. But the idea is that it it becomes the kind of thing where you know you have to find your own identity. And the best way is to develop it through musical skills as strong as you can. Because one of the problems with a lot of people is, even though they've gone to school, there's still some musical skills missing. And I don't know if it's um, self-discipline um, in, in, in developing certain things, but I, I think it's, it's almost going back to the composers where they didn't sound alike, you know, Ravel and Debussy don't sound anything alike, you know, and there's hundreds of years apart in not those two, but other people. I mean, obviously, you know, Bach was hundreds of years earlier, but, you know, they don't sound anything alike. And I think if you had one guy like, okay, Bach was it, he was the greatest of all time. Then there's no, no, there's no reason for somebody, let's say like Chopin to write something or Mozart to write something because Bach already did it. We, you know, so right, Bird did right. everything about Buddy Rich, Joe Pass did everything, because that's what what happens is is you end up um, where there's nowhere to go because they made one guy in. Like there's nothing after Sinatra, so everybody sounds the same. They all are doing Sinatra tributes today. I'm I'm tired of it. I know Frank was great, <laughs> and, uh, dude. You're nailing. I don't, and I said there is no. It's gonna just take absolutely fearless sound seekers like yeah. Harold Mayburn and, and Charles Lloyd, George Coleman, all those guys. I mean, it, to me, it also is a reflection of our uh, dysfunction. I mean, music is a, I remember a great percussionist, Tony Waters, who played with Blakey. He said, he goes, he's like, man, he's like, even through the hardest times, sociologically, politically, and he was referring to the Vietnam War. He's like, the music always carried us through. I mean, you listen to the music from that era, the jazz, it's explosive, you know, and and and, oh. and now it's, it's, it's uh, and part of it's also what we didn't talk about. It's just younger cats, especially like my daughters, you know, I mean, they listen to all types of music, so their ears are wide open. But like most right. kids they don't even know that they're listening to mechanized rhythm. They don't even, they've been, all they've heard is drum, drum machines their whole life. So you have cats that yeah, are, it, yeah, it, it's definitely the, the technology versus the creative, uh, and technology is great. I use it. No, a, you got to use program. it as a tool, but, but don't, if you become too reliant yeah. on it, you become <laughs> an automaton. Yeah. Yeah. And it's great. Cause I can write something here and back and say, Oh, there's a wrong note there. So, but yeah. And, and, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, um, it, it's a difficult thing because a lot of people cannot tell the difference between West and a student or a singer, let's say, like, um, I'm trying to think who's any, any great, even a pop singer, they can't tell the difference between Doris Day and, and some young girl that's just That's right, out. yeah. They they're, yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and here's a seasoned professional that was, 
like doing uh, It's You or No One in a 1949 movie with Paige Cavanaugh, alveolo on guitar, doing uh, It's You or No One as a ballad the original way, and that's 1949. And, I mean, all those years of singing, forget the acting, but just the singing all those years, Les Brown and his band are renowned, but they're all great, great uh, music there, whether it's pop or jazz, whatever it is, it's still good. But I, I think they a lot of times people cannot tell the difference. They don't know, like you said, um, let's say uh, King Pleasure. There's another guy from from some oh. I don't know eighteen year old kid, and there's nothing wrong with the eighteen year old kid. I mean, it, some of them are great, but it's just a problem today. No one knows the difference, and you know, you go down the street, and let's say some guys working the jackhammer on the street during construction you say excuse me sir did you know who bill jackson is he goes who you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i mean it's you know, yeah you have to be i mean you have to be a little bit curious um yeah yes you know and uh anyway i i got one more uh i got one more voice yes. uh for you uh and then we'll we'll come back sounds great we have to be self-sufficient as far as rhythm is concerned, we cannot rely on the drum to dictate for us the time and the rhythm, you know, the measurement. And we have to be secure in our own ability to stay on, uh, stay within the structure, the rhythmic structure. You know, we have these multiples of two basically uh, every four bars that's the way we, 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 we separate that and if we can feel every four bars then we can feel every eight bars then we can feel every 16 bars it becomes so natural that we don't have to really count we just feel the, the space mm. so once you're secure in your ability to feel the space you don't need the drums to keep time for you but you also have to be very uh uh, uh, connected, you have to be very connected to that space that you, you you're feeling, because drummers like Elvin, and there are a few others that play, they play within the time, but they're sort of floating with the time. They're not actually marking the time for you. They're playing within the time, but it's like sailing over the time, playing a musical. Uh, and rhythmical, of course, a musical and rhythmical way in such a way that it it's it's it floats, it floats. Uh. Nobody's. Uh, that was my interview with uh, Julian Priester, uh, and uh, I, I just I did above as we wrap up set one here. I just I kind of wanted to ask you about, um, uh, you know, how you have learned your own inner time feel and uh and how you learn to to be less reliant on the on the on the rhythm section itself and just sort of keep time on your own well that's a great question and and i've thought about that a lot i was doing one gig one time and um for some reason the drummer wasn't making it and the piano player who was sitting in just said well you just went straight ahead i said well i learned it like a lot of guys like Charlie Parker would do a gig and they wouldn't know the song yet because it was like in those days it was new music standards like the song is you by Jerome Kern. So that he come to the bridge, he just played himself. So I learned to be self-reliant. Also mentioning people like Joe Pass since he played a lot of solo in his career. I learned that 
sometimes you have to go play alone. So when you go into time, uh, you really have to make sure you have a handle on it. And and what I like about time is it's like a rubber band. You can, like the big bands like Basie do that. They 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 swell, they retract. It's it's not so metronomic. But one of the things I studied besides the composition is conducting. And I studied with a great conductor who played trumpet named Jack Fearman. And one of the things I learned when I learned conducting, I figured a, a better way to control that. Like if you're playing alone, you might want to start rubato. Then you go to tempo, and then you come to the end of a cadence, you might want to stretch it by a bar. And the same thing if conducting an orchestra, you have complete control over it. Now with a band and jazz, it's interplay. But if it's not happening... You have to go straight ahead, and that's one of the things I remember hearing about players is they would just just nail it. You know, if everybody else falls off, you just keep going. So it's kind of an inner thing you have to develop, I believe, if that makes sense. Absolutely, and I got to tell you, man, it, I can't wait. I please let me know about uh, uh, AJ's and AJ's, and, yeah. and, I, and I I look forward to coming out again and and seeing you real well, soon. Well, yeah, and if, you're in, if you're ever in Pasadena, I'm doing Thursdays at Edward Mills. Uh, you know, and you can always call me. I'll give you the details. Um, and then, how do I access this? Do you want to text me? Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll send you. I'll, I'll send you. Uh, I'll, I'll send you uh, a yeah. copy. All right, ma'am. Yeah. yeah, I love it. Thanks for doing this. It was a blast. Yeah, you're much, a great interviewer. Thank you, man. Much love to you. Yeah, same to Take you. Take care, man. Later. Take. Bye. Bye. Bye.